You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. JP Morgan, Equity BQ, that gives me my Bloomberg quote, which is my go-to quote for any security I pop in there. Uh, it's up like one-tenth of one percent today. It's up four percent year-to-date. Aren't they having an investor day today? Shanali Basic, you cover all the Wall Street stuff. I was expecting maybe not a bombshell, but can I have a little bit of excitement coming out of Investor Day, but so far, not so much? I mean, J.P. Morgan makes money, big deal. No, I'm kidding. Exactly. I, 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 well, that's the thing. I mean, J.P. Morgan, the, typically when they do Investor Day, you get a lot of detail about how they're managing the business line by line, business by business, executive by executive. But, you know, they they have not been known to sit there and throw out massive big targets okay. on Investor Day. Uh, they have reiterated the targets they've set, but they have a new, one, one target I think in particular is important. It's the 2020 23 net interest income expectation. They're expected to make more, and it's because of that first Republic deal. Okay. You would expect some of that, but it, to your point here, somewhat muted because there is still a lot of uncertainty, and JP Morgan's executives tell you all about it. So there haven't been any bombshells yet, have there, from this acquisition of this this, this bank? I mean, they kind of sometimes you go in there and you're like, uh oh. You know, but they didn't have any of that so far, at least. I think what it will be is a matter of showing just how much this will move the needle for J.P. Morgan over time. You think back to Bear Stearns, for yeah, example, yeah. and it wasn't immediately clear, especially when on the horizon there were so many hiccups to work through, just how much of a huge strategic change J- Bear Stearns would be. It made them one of the top fixed income trading house on Wall Street. It now is making them such a competitive um, institutional broker, if you will, you know, just at the heart of capital markets competing with the investment bank, but First Republic will really make it a contender bigger and bigger in wealth, right. wealth and consumer here. I'm right, just looking at a red headline going across the Bloomberg terminal. Biden will meet with McCarthy at 5.30 p.m. today, Wall Street time, to discuss the debt limit. So we'll have uh, more reporting on that, but that seems like a, a move in the right direction. Kriti Gupta joins us here yeah. in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, just coming off the TV screen. Um, so Kriti, I was just talking to Shanali here, not a whole lot of action coming out of um, the JP Morgan. I wanted to ask you about a smaller deal. Yeah. Um, Greenhill. Mizuho buying Greenhill. <laughs> now, Greenhill is only, it's a small company. It's less than a billion dollar market cap, but it's Bob Greenhill, who was a, just a legendary deal maker. They were one of the first boutique investment banks to come public in like 
20 years ago or something. There's a reason, and I've got to say, I thought the story would do well. It is the most read on the terminal already and within a couple of hours here. And the reason is, yes, Bob Greenhill, he was a banker to Sumner Redstone. He was a banker to Sandy Weil. He was really in that era of legendary investment bankers. Uh, Morgan Stanley, former Morgan Stanley, left out on his own, formed Greenhill and Company. And yeah, it was one of their original boutiques and one of the first to go public, really the first in this generation. And it inspired others like Evercore, PJT, Houlihan Loki, Molis and Company to go public too. So it's really an end of an era for a public run for Greenhill and Company, but really a tough decade, Paul. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at the stock price chart. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're getting paid double where they closed on Friday, but still it's a fraction of where it was at its peak. I mean, in the heat, like in the aftermath of the financial crisis, this was a stock at more than $81 a share. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Friday, it closed at less than $7 a right, share. Right. So that just shows you how far they had come. And remember, investment bankers are partly paid in equity of their own investment banks. So it's a tough retention tool when you're facing that much pressure on your stock price. So one of the key takeaways, um, I'm going to bring it back to J.P. Morgan here, because $550 million for Mizuho, but it feels like J.P. Morgan, all eyes uh, on on Jamie Dimon, especially with geopolitics kind of uh, rearing its ugly head once again. What is the J.P. Morgan take on China? You know, it's funny. You keep on asking that. The take on China. I know. I I don't (laughs) know why you're so convinced that the investment (laughs) banks are are stepping away at full scale. Well, they're not. So the reason I ask is because it feels like we're headed towards a, and correct me if I'm wrong, it does feel like we're headed towards an era or a couple of decades where you do start to see this kind of deglobalization, right? It's been in the works for the past couple of years uh, as well. Um, I can't remember. I think you might be the one who showed me this or maybe someone else did. But um, when you look at the league tables, a lot of the deal volume has fallen in Asia specifically. I'm not sure whether that's a function of kind of recession or these late COVID measures or... There are um, a few things. Let me give Walk you the yeah. let me give you the bull case because yeah. you have seen a lot of hedge funds come back into China. You have seen a lot of big investment managers hold tight into China even amid all these uncertainties. When you're a bank like JP Morgan, listen, you're America's biggest bank. Yeah. America is your biggest market. Uh, Citigroup, however, is a little more diversified. They have a lot more global businesses. The reopening of China has been so far a pretty big boon to activity and not just in China, in Europe, pretty, yeah. where the investment banks are also trying to double down. I think the bigger question here is one, how global supply chains start to untangle and then also geopolitical risks because the big whale in the room is China's relationship to Taiwan. And again, we've been talking about this a lot. The U.S. bank CEOs have been grilled on Capitol Hill asking what they would do in that event. And it's a complicated question because the answer really is nothing. (laughs) That is the real answer. Um, And it's because they follow what the U.S. regulators would make them do, which at, at, at this point in time is nothing. Well, how does that work exactly when you kind of let's say they have these deals or even assets uh, sitting in China in that kind of scenario just play this out for me worst case scenario I mean what happens to those assets I mean the way when I'm kind of comparing this to and correct me if I'm wrong if this is an extreme example but kind of the the bank presence in Russia for example would we see something similar I think that's a long shot I think that it, it would be a long shot to equate the two. It, w- it would take a lot, but it is under the surface. It is under the minds of, on the minds of many executives. But the idea of it be getting to that point is still not the immediate concern yeah. because it, it's, it's not happening. And China is such a, a whale in the room. The, the, the activity of China as a, as a global force in the economy, the demographics being more on their side than in the United States. I'll give you another example of this. Let's not take JP Morgan, let's take Credit Suisse. 
Credit Suisse, when they tried to build another investment bank, they tried to do it with a firm that focused mainly on China and Saudi Arabia, yeah. based in New York City. I don't know, Critty. That doesn't show me a Fair. story that it's trying to untangle uh, from the rest of the world. All right, Shanali Basak, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Shanali Basak, she covers all things Wall Street today, giving us the latest reporting. JP Morgan, again, they're having an investor day ongoing uh, today uh, in New York City, as I recall. Uh, so getting all their investors and analysts together, talking about the future. Maybe go take a tour of their new headquarters, which is being built on Park Avenue. Uh, it is awesome. I can't wait to see what it looks like when it opens up, but I'm sure it'll be state of the art. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Do we want to talk energy? We want to talk ETFs, and so we want to do that. We talked to Will Ryan. He's the chief executive officer of Granite Shares Advisors. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Will, on the commodities front here, I want to start with gold. Our commodities analyst here, um, Mike McGlone of Bloomberg Intelligence, he says basically buy gold and short everything else, including oil. Talk to us about gold. What's your call there? What are you guys thinking about that? Well, gold right now, I mean, the, the, the biggest concern for, I think, probably most people in the market, but certainly for those who are interested in gold, is the debt ceiling. Because yep. you may remember that back in 2011, when the U.S. Um, ultimately defaulted, um, and sorry, as should say, the credit rating was downgraded uh, for the first time, you know, that propelled gold to, at the time, a high. And so clearly, if there was any breakdown in talks and a deal doesn't get done, um, fears that that could happen again certainly you know, elevates that premium for people looking for a hedge in gold. How does that work exactly when you invest through the ETF space? It feels like there's that one ETF that everyone uses for, for gold, but then if you're doing any other sort of commodities, ETFs aren't really the, the vehicle to use, right? 
I guess it sort of depends because you know the beauty of gold and the beauty of precious metals is that their natural state, obviously after they've been mined, is you can store it in a vault. So they're bars that you can put in a vault, they won't decay, uh, nothing will happen to them unless they're you know, clearly something nefarious. And so they're ideal to hold in a fund as a natural investment state. When you go outside of precious metals and you're dealing with commodities that can decay or even die, you know, that's a different proposition. And typically the way that we address that is via the futures market. And so you're talking about broad commodity ETF or even ETF on oil, et cetera. That's typically done like, in the isn't, Wasn't there um, kind of a famous story about copper ETFs not working for that exact reason that they fall apart or something, that the storage becomes an issue? Th- that's right. So, you know, there a physical, any physical backed, physically backed commodity is clearly going to be challenged to the extent that there's a challenge on securing supply. So if you can imagine something like copper, the price of a pound of copper is clearly materially different from you know gold. So you need a lot more storage for the same weight of metal as you do in gold. And so it's not to say that you can't do that. You can. It's just that it's going to be logistically a lot more challenging than providing storage for gold. Talk about that. Platinum. That's what we hear. I hear more and more about. And you guys have got the Granite Shares Platinum Trust. Why would I want to have exposure to platinum here? Well, platinum is a really interesting one because the fundamentals for this year, um, we're expecting a big deficit. Um, So in other words, more demand than we have supply for this year. So automatically for any commodity, that puts you on a firm footing. What's interesting is the majority of platinum comes from South Africa. And at the moment, they're having very, very big issues with energy supply to the sector. So you're seeing that manifesting in blackouts um, across the country, but particularly, obviously, as it pertains to the production itself. So when you have energy blackouts, that affects mine supply. And so the outlook for supply gets even bleaker. Um, But the demand story for platinum is really there's twofold good stories. One is main uses in catalytic converters. So particularly for diesel engine cars, it cleans the emissions and vehicle sales, despite all the negative news we have, vehicle sales across the globe are expected to increase this year. The second thing is that you need platinum or as a vital ingredient for the production of hydrogen. And so hydrogen is another you know, story which people are focused on as an alternative or a complement to electricity produced by batteries. And so hydrogen as an alternative fuel source uh, is something that a lot of governments and indeed you know, make, makers of even autos to, to airplanes start to focus on now. So we need platinum for that. When you talk about platinum, what do you, and from an investment point of view, though, what, what's the narrative behind that? For gold, it's easy. It's the debt ceiling, it's inflation, it's all that jazz. Copper, it's China, oil, China, US, whatever. What's the investment narrative behind platinum? Well, platinum's much more of a fundamentally driven commodity. So in other words, do you expect the demand for platinum to go up over time? And in an ideal scenario, is the demand going to outstrip supply? And therefore, like any commodity, it's sort of, Economics 101, that you know, that will dictate where pricing goes. So for platinum, you know, when we look at this market, we have more demand than supplies. That's good. Um, outlook for autos is positive, so more sales for orders. And we think that the hydrogen story is a really good one. You know, we're going to have hydrogen as an alternative, you know, green fuel source, and we need platinum for that. But you know, that that's really the. It's a metal that's 30 times rarer than gold. It's a much smaller oh. market. 
I didn't know that. Okay. All right. Let's go more boring stuff, mundane stuff. WTI crude oil. It's under 72 bucks a barrel. It just feels like it should be higher. Why isn't it? Um, the main reason is, again, the debt ceiling scenario at the moment. But that's going to get fixed. I'll, you want we me to go down to the trading pits of, the, of oil and tell these guys, it's going to get fixed. Paul Sweeney no, no making the contrarian yeah. call. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it, it is. I mean, the, the, any, any kind of downward move we've had in oil, typically, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but over the last 12 months has been about recession narratives. Yep. So whether we're talking about the debt ceiling immediately leading to um, recession or whether we're just talking about a more global slowdown. But, but that's the story. I mean, the data coming out of China has actually been really good. March was a huge month um, in terms of oil demand consumption. Okay. And we know from you know, the Middle East that you know, Saudi Arabia and the, the OPEC um, consortium are definitely not opposed to cutting production if they feel like pricing is at, at a lower left level. Can we go back to the gold story? I, I'm just I'm looking you up uh, on your LinkedIn profile. You used to work at the World Gold Council, which that's pretty cool. There is a thing. There is a thing. Come on, what you guys do you just count gold. Yeah. yeah. What do you do at the World Gold Council? Tell our audience. Well, the World Gold Council is the um, sort of official industry body, if you will, for the gold industry. So it's supported by the gold mining companies mm-hmm. um, with a mission to raise awareness um, for gold. So think of it as like a trade association in some respects. Um, but the most well-known thing that the World Gold Council probably does is it owns the GLD ETF, right. um, which is the largest gold ETF. So I was the CEO of that for, for two and a half years before starting my own one bar with, um, with Granite Shares. That's the ticker, sorry, B-A-R. Um, but oh, yes. Okay. All right. So, Critty, here's the thing about Will Ryan. Every time he comes in, I'm like, I go look through my notes and I see he goes to, he went to the University of Bath in England. Okay. So I Google that. And Which it looks you can like, only say in an accent, apparently. Exactly, you can say <laughs> Bath. Um, but you Google it, and it looks like the most beautiful town anywhere. And then I keep asking myself, how come I've never been there? And I go to my little map thing, Majig. It's only an <laughs> hour and 17-minute train ride from Paddington Station in London. Why, why haven't I been? I've been to London like a thousand times. It's a good question. So I think, I, I think can, you just made I, an itinerary for your next trip. I can do a day trip there, right? Or I can do an overnight trip, Oh, right? yeah, easily, easily. All right. Put that on the itinerary. <laughs> Put that on the itinerary. Um, let's go back to market pricing here. I think we've got a few more minutes left. Uh, p- Pulling back to gold, though, we were just near record. Did we break the record high? I can't remember. But we were near record highs uh, for gold and then kind of retreated back. I think we're at 1970 the last time I checked, 1972 on, on spot gold. What would it take to break that record high? Uh, most immediately, some kind of breakdown in the debt ceiling. Um, that's, that's the clear and present danger for the market, but you know, gold prices will thrive off any kind of dislocation event. And you know, the fear of this happening has been one of the main reasons why you know, gold has climbed back up to these levels. But clearly if we have any breakdown, obviously worst case scenario, if we had some kind of default event, um, prices of gold would be materially higher. And silver doesn't, does silver follow gold? What's the relationship gold to silver? It, it does. Um, you know, silver, silver is more industrial um, because the majority of demand for silver is more industrial. So it's a bit like platinum where it's going to be more um, related to the business cycle. However, you know, silver is the, the closest correlated to gold. And so when gold prices are going up, typically silver prices are also going up. But you can't corner that. Like who cornered the silver market back in the day? That wasn't the, the, Hunt, Brothers. the Hunt Brothers. How do you corner a silver market? I mean, is it is it the size that it can be done? 
Um, I mean, most com on most commodities are at the size that they can be done. I mean, clearly, you know, OPEC, remember, I yep. mean, is a cartel in of itself. I mean, it's right. not designed to corner the market in the uh, in the same sense as the hunts did. Um, but you know, that's I guess short order why we have regulation in these markets right. to try and stop uh, these things happening. Interesting. Okay, Will Ryan, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Will Ryan, he's the Chief Executive Officer of Granite Shares uh, Advisors. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We woke this morning to the news that... Uh, China uh, declaring Micron Technologies a cybersecurity risk. I guess that's a, a no-no. So they're China's barring Micron chips. What does it mean? The stock is down about 4%, as John just mentioned here. Uh, but let's bring in an expert here to kind of frame this out. Paula Pencal, uh, she covers semiconductors with Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So we appreciate you coming in. You get a gold star for that, unlike your management, which mails it in, phones it in. Uh, I appreciate you coming in. Um, Paula, how big a deal is this for Micron? Again, the stock is off a little bit, but uh, frame it out for us. Happy to be here, Paul. Thank you. Um, look, it, it was a low ball punch um, against the United States. Um, and I say that because um, Micron, uh, China can easily replace the product with its com by its competitors in Southeast Asia, Samsung. SK Hynix. So it's not really hurting itself by banning these products. Um, Micron stock is down, yes, but I think they're starting. it's starting to pair some of those losses. I think as people look at it more closely, China roughly represents maybe 11% of direct sales, of Micron's direct sales. Um, but of that, the majority goes to into consumer electronics products. And so even less of that is likely to be exposed to this ban. Yet, you know, caveat here though is that China has not completely defined what it means by this ban. There's very few details out there. So there is a risk it could be broader than that. So you said it's given very few details. What has it said about this ban? It basically said that it's banning Micron's chips that are used in critical information infrastructure product. And, you know, that could be anything from defense, healthcare, transportation, but it's very vague. Yeah. And so we know that Micron makes most of the chips for consumer electronics electronics like phones and notebooks and things like that. So even though they have this roughly 11% direct exposure, actually 16% if you include Hong Kong, um, the exposure could be a lot less than that. But you know, for headlines, it's like, wow, yeah. you know, um, China is is banning Micron chips and that's not gonna, you know, the stock market is clearly reacting to right. that. So when you say there is no direct exposure, kind of um, unpack that for us here because from my very rudimentary knowledge of, of chips, when you put a chip into, or manufacture a chip and then sell it to China, a Chinese company, and that goes into a consumer electronics, whatever, let's say a smartphone, hypothetically. But that smartphone is brought, let's say exported right back here to the States. Is that the chip that's included in this ban or is it not included because it's 
ultimately going back into a consumer smartphone? It's not completely clear, and that's sort of a broader potential risk um, within the supply chain. And But what I will say is that direct exposure being Micron has a contract with a local Chinese distributor mm-hmm. or company who does um, um, you know, contract manufacturing for large chip manufacturers. And they're literally putting the product together. And there, they usually buy Micron chips. So in this case, those Chinese companies within China are not going to be allowed to purchase certain chips directly from Micron. Okay. Now, you look at a company like NVIDIA, they use Micron chips in their latest gaming, you know, um, video gaming product, GPU, that is manufactured in China. That's Micron chip. Right. Okay, that's still consumer electronics, but like there is a risk if China really wants to play hardball. I'm not suggesting I think they will, but there is the risk that this could broaden and expand beyond just, you know, memory chips um, sold directly to China. So where are we on this kind of budding tech cold war between China and kind of the U.S. and the West? I mean, you follow these big chip companies, big tech, big tech companies. Um, they have broad exposure there. What are you hearing from your companies? Is this really something to be concerned about? Because President Biden, you know, kind of came out today and said, not to worry, we'll, we're, we're, we're going to tone it down a little bit with China. But is there a cold war in technology? Yes, there okay. is. <laughs> and there has been for some time. And it's actually, it's heating up right now. And, you know, we just had a G7 event. And at that event, China was criticized, not just for economic policies, um, but also for human rights abuses, all these other things. And so it's not surprising that literally a day later, they come out with the conclusion on cybersecurity risk for Micron chips. So there is a cybersecurity war. So what we're seeing is just a disruption in the overall supply chain. There's a regionalization taking place. No one really knows what it's gonna look like in the end because every it's so complicated and everybody's so integrated. So even China, um, they're walking a fine line because they need many of our right. advanced chips. So that's why I say banning Micron chips was an easy one because they can source them elsewhere okay. pretty easily because they're commoditized. But they're not going to potentially ban you know, Qualcomm's chips yeah. right away because that's half their phones going into their own domestic market. I was just about to say, so that's a soft punch. What does a, what does a hard punch look like to the U.S.? You know, I... I that, again, that would be a hard... That would be looking at a Qualcomm or some company, like Qualcomm, 64% of their revenues are derived from China. And so, again, I don't know how realistic that is, but something like that would be a hard punch. If China came out today and said, yeah, we have three nanometer node technology, which, you know, they say they have seven nano, which is more advanced, mostly China um, uses 24 nanometer technology right now. Advanced is seven nano and under in general. They developed um, seven nano, but it's not being mass produced yet. And it takes time to like experiment with these things to get them up running efficiently. So if China came out and said, oh, we have three nanotechnology or we now have advanced memory technology, that could be a big blow. Um, 
they could steal it. They could. They may have yeah. it, and they're trying to develop it further. Or they may have a product, and often they they look at that product and sort of back into the technology to create their own. So these are the kind of things that could be hurtful. But I suspect there's going to be more negotiation because no one wins. Right. In the end. Right. It's very integrated as we're as we're finding out. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Paula Pencal, she is the semiconductor analyst on the technology team at Bloomberg Intelligence. Again, in my opinion, the best tech team on Wall Street. We appreciate getting some time from Paula here. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's turn to this... Um debt ceiling issue where it looks like President Biden has a call with Speaker uh, of the House today uh, at 5.30 p.m. Wall Street time. Yeah. I take that as a good sign. I mean, you know, I kind of think in negotiations, you want the sides to be talking rather than not talking. But let's check in with Nancy Kimmelman, professor at Northeastern University. Um, Nancy, how do you think about this, these discussions here? Is it just, just the cost of doing business in America today? Or is there something that we should be maybe more concerned about this. There might be a bigger risk out there than, than maybe the average person thinks. Well, there could be risk. I mean, we, we are getting remarkably or distressingly close to this June 1st deadline. And it's a real deadline. I mean, if we, if we push against it, Medicare payments aren't going to get out. Social Security payments are, aren't going to get out. And it's going to have a real impact on real people. So it's not something to poo-poo about. That said... Um, you know, this year the debt ceiling talk is taking place in in a different world. We live in a different world politically. Um, you know, we're we're in the midst now of figuring out who the who the candidates are going to be for the next presidential election. We have DeSantis throwing his hat in. Trump is going full bore. 
you know, that is a part of this whole conversation um, because I think a lot of what's going on between McCarthy and, and Biden at this point is political theatrics, mm. um, and neither side can really afford to, to be seen giving ground, and it's causing uh, causing this, this debt ceiling debate or the, this negotiation um, to just be held at a different level than we've seen previously. So then, do you think that this is more a debate that is just for showmanship, like you said, or do you think there's real risk here to a potential default that markets might not even uh, necessarily be properly pricing in right now? Oh, I think I think the impact on the economy and especially the financial markets could be very, very real. It already is. Yeah. We're already seeing the the prices getting hammered for Treasury securities that would be affected by the um, by the Treasury not being able to roll over the debt. Um, we we've seen the forecasts that are coming out of private forecasters as well as the Council of Economic Advisors and and others in Washington suggesting that that if we if we breach this. This, this line in the sand, um, the impact on unemployment could be severe. It could immediately throw the economy into a recession. I mean, this is, this is real, real side economics, and it's really unfortunate that the politicians are playing a little bit loose with, with these negotiations. Not that they're not trying, but, you know, nobody's willing to give ground. There's really uh, an, a, a sense that politics at this point in time, neither side can be seen giving in. And that's a very dangerous position for us to be on, politically as well as economically. All right, here's my dumb question of the day, Professor. Maybe you can help me out. What What are they actually negotiating? Like, is it a <laughs> debt ceiling raise? Is it to solve our problems for the end of time? What are they negotiating? Well, no, no, it's certainly not for the end of time. It would be nice if it were. No, here's the gig. The Treasury has, the government has already, this is the irony that probably most people don't realize, the government has already authorized payment of these monies. Um, in other words, the government has a spending plan of what it has to spend on every day of the year. Um, and the problem is we don't raise enough in the way of taxes to be able to make those, those commitments real. In other words, if we want to send out Social Security checks, we have to either have enough tax revenue in the Treasury's coffers to be able to pay those Social Security checks, or we have to borrow the money. Now, everyone knows that U.S. government runs a deficit. We have been for decades. And therefore, the, the gap is always made up by issuing new debt. Uh, but the, the commitment to spend the money is already there. What they're arguing about is whether they're going to approve the, the, the debt to be issued so that the payments can be made. So that's what it's about. Now, the problem is because we run a continual deficit year after year after year, the amount of debt outstanding just keeps growing and growing and growing. We never pay off the debt that we issued last year or 10 years ago or 30 years ago. We never really pay it off. We just replace it with newer securities, with newer bonds. So the debt is going to continue to accumulate. That number, which obviously is in the trillions, is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And they'll agree to a debt limit, I hope, before June 1st. But all that will do is take the debt limit, that debt ceiling, off the conversation, out of the conversation. I'll take it off the table for a period of time, maybe a couple of years, and then we'll be right back in it again with another negotiation because the government really doesn't ever get to a point where the level of debt outstanding ever falls. Do you think that they let it uh, expire for a couple of years, though, or do you think Republicans say, hey, let's have another expiration date before the 2024 election? 
Oh, that is a nasty question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a nasty question. I, I think everyone concerned is praying that that's not what happens. Um, and, and I also have to say, not only are we all praying it doesn't happen, I'm not exactly sure who, which side is going to be the, the, the loser in this. Neither mm-hmm. side is going to come out the winner. But which side is really going to be the worst loser? Um, you know, if, they, if the McCarthy and the Republicans really play hardball here, um, and the Democrats, which they haven't done yet, by the way, um, can say, tell a convincing story about how they're playing ball, but the other side isn't. I don't think, you know, the, the Democrats have done a particularly good job for themselves in that regard. Um, but the, if the American people decide that grandma didn't get her Social Security check, mm. and it's because of that wrangling in Washington, I don't know that that's going to be particularly good for election prospects for either side. Yeah. So I suspect that the Republicans, as well as the Democrats, will get this thing passed and it will take us past, it hopefully will take us past the election. Because I don't think either side wants to be negotiating this going into an election in a few months. At some point, do we as a government of people, do we have to pay down this debt, pay back this debt, or are we just nope. can let it roll into perpetuity? We let it roll into perpetuity. Well, that said, let's be realistic about it. What is what is at risk here if we don't pass a debt ceiling is that the world will not look upon U.S. debt the same way it has in the past. For, for decades now, foreign buyers of U.S. Treasury securities have been robust. Those, those purchases by foreigners have been very robust. So we really haven't seen any need to pay down our debt because – Every time we have a new new bond issue or a new bill issue, not only do Americans Americans buy those securities, but people from all over the world buy those securities, and they do so willingly. Not only do are the buyers there willingly. Remember, the U.S. Treasury has a relatively low interest rate to pay. We, you know, our interest rates are sort of the benchmark, and they're below all the other interest rates that that companies yep. and individuals have to pay. So there's no there's no incentive. For the U.S. Treasury to get to the point where we would pay down the debt, um, as long as as long as the rest of the world and as long as Americans are willing to lend that money to the U.S. Treasury, it seems a model that works. All right, it's a model. And I don't think anyone's ready to break that model. <laughs> yeah, it's a model that doesn't work for me, but I, I guess it works for the government. Good for them, I guess. Dr. Nancy well, Kimmelman. It doesn't work for you individually at all. It doesn't work for any of us. No, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Nancy Kimmelman, economics professor for Northeastern University, and. Tufts University talking about this debt ceiling. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And we need to know about tech. Uh, We talked to this guy, Mandeep Singh. We hired him. We can't get rid of the dude. He just keeps sticking around. He's our senior tech analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he shows up every day. None of this phoning nice. it in, working from home, any of that silliness. Uh, he's in here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, so Meta, there is nothing stopping this freight train this year. I mean, it got crushed last year down 60%, but it's up over 100%. They get fined by the EU, and the market's just like, no big deal. Is that is that a reasonable read that it really is not that big a deal for their business? 
Well, so I, I think last year the sentiment was too negative. Yep. This year, everyone realizes <laughs> that it's a great business. It can print $30, $40 billion in free cash flow every year. And then, uh, you know, when you think about the size of the fine, $1 billion isn't that big of a deal. I think what it conveys to me is one, regulators feel this business model is too good and it's, you know, uh, kind of driven by uh, the ad market, which there is a very fine line between privacy and showing ads. And we have seen that with Google over the years. Google has paid over eight to $10 billion in cumulative fines yep. just in the EU. So And Microsoft before. Uh, Microsoft before. We've seen so, this playbook before out of the European We Union. have, and, and so it's not changing. I think what it does to a company is it limits their ability to really innovate in a sense that they can't you know, acquire any company. I mean, forget about uh, you know capturing more data from the users. In turn, they have to change their business practices to please the regulators. And you won't see any effect, you know, in the next one or two quarters. But over time, it limits their ability to grow. And I think that is the big risk, uh, given the business model is so good, given they keep, you know, printing free cash flow. Is will it hurt their growth in the long term? And the answer to that is yes. We did see Microsoft Limited, you know, for a number of years. Now the EU has approved the Activision deal, but for a number of years, Microsoft couldn't buy anything. Right. And and I think that is what you will see with Meta as well. Can Meta hedge against that through any changes on their end or by just suffering the losses that aren't that big of a deal for them? Well, so GDPR came into effect, you know, three years back, and they have plenty of time to so change that's their. Pete, that is the stuff that says I got to click yes if I want the cookies and all yes, that kind of stuff. Yes. That's that. Yes. And okay. also the regulations with regards to storing the data within the EU region. That is why they had to pay this fine is because right now they are storing the data, the EU data outside the region in the US data centers and ah, the, the EU regulators do okay. don't want that. So, okay. but when you think about, you know, generative AI and large language models, it's about gathering a lot of data and then doing AI on it. So Meta, even though it has all these different assets, Instagram, you know, Facebook app, WhatsApp, and then it operates globally, it can't really combine all those data sets because of these restrictions. So okay. if EU restricts their ability to take the data outside the region, then basically, you know, think of it this way, they can't even apply AI to their own first party data set that they have uh, across regions. And I think, again, it goes back to the point about putting restrictions, which limit your ability to target ads. And then on top of that, you have to make business model changes to please the regulators. So it is restrictive in that sense. Mark Zuckerberg, the metaverse. Um, it's a business most of his shareholders don't understand but what they know is he initially was going to spend a gajillion and one dollars on it. How is he viewing this metaverse and the expenditures associated with developing it? I mean, it's been a complete 180, you know, in the sense that uh, last year he was like, we are doing this and uh, we are going to do this at all costs. This year it's been more uh, shareholder friendly, acknowledging what shareholders want in terms of restraining their metaverse bets. And they have uh, taken down the guidance in terms of the spend. So clearly that is what's driven that 100% move in the stock. I mean, it, has he completely given up on Metaverse? That can happen only if he changes the name of the company back to Facebook from Meta. <laughs> I don't know if that will happen anytime soon. <laughs> well, it, it sort of feels like the Metaverse uh, 
very minimal wave was like totally overtaken by the AI wave if we're going to compare the two. Um, does Meta's focus on cost cutting uh, become the new headline story for them? And is the market happy about that? I mean, market is happy about the cost discipline that they have showed this year. I don't know if they'll be happy about Meta being a cost-cutting story for the medium to long term, simply because if it's not a growing asset, why does it deserve a premium multiple in in the peer group? And we've got a lot of you know assets within tech which becomes slow growth over time, and then the market is like, okay, this is just a cash machine. They can do buybacks, but there won't be any top line growth, and that is what they need to answer. Whether it's metaverse or generative AI, I I, I don't think how, it's how that clear. How do we clear. answer that then? Well, so, I mean, ad models are beautiful in the sense they scale very well. And Meta has got Instagram, WhatsApp. WhatsApp, a lot of people would argue, is under-monetized. And, and they have been talking about click-to-message ads being a $10 billion revenue run rate business. If they can scale that, that could easily drive the next two, three years of top-line growth. And Instagram, we know how well that has done. They have a problem with the core blue app. But clearly, I, I think they have levers to pull. The question is, what will that metaverse bet look like? And if Apple launches a device, which we are hearing they could next week, then maybe that validates that metaverse market. What's next week? Well, they have their Apple has their developer conference, right? So are you it, going to that? Well, I, I, I'm not going, but we have coverage within we BI. We have coverage yes, yes. within BI. Okay, because yes. I understand there's a a uh, Ford Investor Day today. Just pointing that out. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Nasdaq here. Um, up 21% year to date, that's good. But we're still down 20% from that late 21 high. Do I buy NASDAQ here? Do I buy tech? Or do I, do I make a value call? Do I, I mean, what am I doing here? Well, so it, it all goes back to, uh, I think, what uh, Fed does in terms of interest rates. Remember, these are all long duration assets, right? So if the Fed has hit a pause and they are not going to raise interest rates, that is a positive for a lot of the tech stocks. And that is why they've gone up so much. The question is, can the top line growth come back? which is really uh, what is not very obvious right now is can Google go back to you know growing 15, 20%? Can Meta go back to growing 15, 20%? Uh, I think clearly we've seen an inflection in terms of ad pricing headwinds. Ad pricing is getting better. So that's the first step. And then you just have to watch out for how the uh, overall global economy does in the second half. I'm looking at the chart here from Meta. Again, it's up 100 and some odd percent this year, but it's still down pretty big from its late 21 high. So, I mean, it, it seems like the market is kind of in between on these names. I mean, they oversold them, as you yes. said, uh, last year, and now trying to get some of that uh, back. Uh, all right, I'll go with that. I, you know, how can you not own big tech? Maybe it's just because yeah. we've been so influenced over the last 15 years, really, and even longer than that, quite frankly, but, um, but big tech is back. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.